Friends, as we continue to worship the Lord together, let me now invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And even as you're turning there, let me remind you that God has promised to sanctify His people by His Word. And so let's prepare to receive His Word concerning His Son by faith so that we might experience the transforming power of His Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Listen carefully now to the Word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we look to His Word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that Your power and Your power alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. And so, Lord, we pray that You would now help us see the despicable nature of our sin and the utter powerlessness of cultural wisdom. Help us turn from our sins in true repentance and turn to the Lamb who was slain for our forgiveness and cleansing. May we trust in Him alone and pursue holiness by faith as Your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1879, 1879, J.C. Ryle, an English evangelical, wrote these words in his preface to his book, Holiness. This is what Ryle said. Concerning the present position of the whole subject of holiness among English Christians, the older I grow, the more I am convinced that there is a most painfully low standard of living among many in the land who claim to be Christians. But, 
At the same time, I am increasingly convinced that the zealous efforts of some well-meaning persons to promote a higher standard of spiritual life are often not according to knowledge and are really calculated to do more harm than good. Let me explain what I mean, said Ryle. It's easy to get crowds together for what are called higher life and consecration meetings. Ryle was talking about Christians who gathered large numbers of, of people and taught them about a second conversion experience for greater holiness. They were teaching people about perfectionism. Ryle then goes on to describe these gatherings in this way. Sensational and exciting addresses by strange preachers or by women. Loud singing, hot rooms, crowded tents, the constant sight of strong semi-religious feeling in the faces of all around you for several days, late hours, long protracted meetings, public profession of experience. All this kind of thing is very interesting at the time and seems to do good. But is the good real, deeply rooted, solid, and lasting? That's the point. Do those who attend these meetings become more holy, meek? Do they become unselfish, kind, good-tempered, self-denying, and Christ-like at home? Do they become more content with their position in life and more free from restless craving after something different from that which God has given them? Do fathers and mothers and husbands and other relatives and friends find them more pleasant and easy to live with? Can they enjoy a quiet Sunday and quiet means of grace without noise and heat and excitement? Above all, do they grow in love and especially in love towards those who do not agree with them in every jot and tittle? You know, Ryle in his day saw that Christians were not growing in holiness because they had failed to grasp that holiness is supposed to be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people were claiming to be holy without actually living holy lives. And they were looking for other ways to become holy. Beloved, true holiness comes by faith in Christ. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he refers to them as those sanctified in Christ. Christians have been set apart as holy in Jesus Christ, and that is why it is foolish to think that any growth in holiness or progressive sanctification can happen apart from faith in Christ, apart from regularly trusting in His finished work. Now, in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we should not put our trust in the wisdom of the world because it is powerless to save us and it is powerless to sanctify us, make us holy. The power of God to save and to sanctify us is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is found in the Word or the message of the cross. It is not found in the wisdom of the world. And so when we have been saved by faith in the wisdom of the cross, we should not and must not return to the wisdom of the world for our sanctification. The values and the ideals of your culture and my culture may be able to control and modify our behavior, 
but it is powerless to change our hearts. See, God has judged the wisdom of the world, and therefore it is dishonoring to God when we embrace or trust in values that the world esteems. To trust in the wisdom of the world is to cut ourselves off from the power of the cross. Now at Corinth, certain members were judging their leaders on the basis of cultural wisdom, on the basis of what Corinthian culture found to be fascinating and impressive. Uh, They were impressed by their leaders' speaking abilities and their reputation and their influence, and Paul was deeply troubled by this when he heard about this because the Corinthians were looking to their culture instead of trusting in God's wisdom in His Word. And because they were doing this, trusting in cultural values, well, those values began to produce its own fruit, the fruit of division and jealousy and strife. Not only were people divided over their leaders and proud, but some of their local leaders liked the attention that they were getting, and they began to flaunt their abilities, and they were not afraid to tell members what they really thought about Paul. They had a very low view of Paul and his authority. After all, by their standards, he wasn't a very impressive speaker, wasn't a very impressive, didn't have a very impressive personality. And Paul calls these men arrogant because for all their sophistication and speaking abilities, by not trusting in the word of the cross and not following the way of the cross, these men showed that they lacked the Spirit's power for true change. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, Paul says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And because people were not looking to the power of God in the cross, sin was not being confronted. It was being tolerated. And so Paul hears about this, and he promises to come to Corinth to put things in order if they don't change. Because he had heard disturbing reports of certain sins being tolerated in the congregation. And so as he continues to instruct and confront these Corinthians about the wisdom of the cross, he speaks to them about three things. This is how he brings the wisdom of the cross to bear on their situation. He admonishes them concerning three things. Number one, the pride of tolerance. The pride of tolerance. Number two, he teaches them about the power of discipline. And number three, he tells them about the purity of the church. The pride of tolerance, the power of discipline, and the purity of the church. See, Paul's question in chapter 4, verse 20, look at 4, verse 21. That question is appropriate. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? That's appropriate because he had heard some shocking things. 21 flows into chapter 5, verse 1. That chapter division is very unhelpful there. Uh, You need to see how those two relate. One flows into the other. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So this wasn't a secret. This was a widely known fact. Perhaps Paul had heard this matter from Chloe's people. You see that in chapter 1. And Paul says, I can't believe this. 
But it's actually reported that there is sexual sin in the congregation. You see, that word that is translated as sexual immorality is the word pornea. It's where we get the word porn from. That's a broad term that includes all kinds of sexual sins, from lustful thoughts to adultery to prostitution and even the most perverse forms of sexual sin. But that's not what surprises Paul. After all, when you trust in the wisdom of the world, what you'll get is the fruit of worldly wisdom. We know that there was jealousy and selfish ambition in the congregation. People were creating their own little groups. James tells us in James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So show me a church where there's jealousy and selfish ambition among its members, and I can guarantee you there will be all kinds of sin hiding in the dark. So it's not merely the presence of sin that surprises Paul, but the particular kind of sin. It was of a kind, a kind of sexual immorality that is not tolerated even among pagans, among Gentiles, among unbelievers. For a man has his father's wife. Someone in the congregation was in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. This was not a one-night stand. This was an ongoing, unrepentant sin. A man has, he says, his father's wife. You know, that phrase, his father's wife, comes straight out of Leviticus 18, verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Paul is intentionally using this language to show, to tell the Corinthians that this was contrary to God's wisdom in His Word. This was a violation of His good commandments. And it was clear that these two were not married. And so this was an illicit relationship and an incestuous one at that. And he says, even unbelievers in your culture won't tolerate this. They won't have it. Beloved, when the world standard of holiness is higher than the churches, that ought to be deeply troubling to us. If a man repeatedly compliments his female colleague's appearance, or he keeps making comments about her dress, and he sends her suggestive texts or emails, and your office, your HR considers that to be inappropriate conduct or even sexual harassment, but men and women in the congregation tolerate or see nothing wrong with that. That's a problem. That's a problem. If the world that is under God's judgment, if the unbelieving culture that considers the cross to be foolish will not tolerate a certain flavor of immorality, but you can, then you're judging by the wrong standards. You have forgotten the wisdom of the cross. And in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul's favorite word to describe this kind of thinking 
You know what it is. Arrogance. Arrogance. Look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? This should break your heart, says Paul. Now, the last time Paul called them arrogant or puffed up was because they were trusting in cultural criteria to assess their leaders instead of looking to God's Word. They were boasting in men. But now they were putting up with something even their own culture wouldn't tolerate. And beloved, I think this is very instructive for us. There's a lesson to be learned here. This is what arrogance does. This is what pride does to a congregation. It gradually creates an insensitivity to sin. It shuts down your immune system. You become insensitive to small things like lying and flirting and gossip and anger, and then you gradually become insensitive to sexual immorality. Do you think your current date night with porn started all of a sudden? Oh no, this began a long time ago with your arrogance. It began with you tolerating the little things. Brother, if this is you, if you're struggling with sexual sin or pornography, if you're caught up in an illicit sexual relationship, come and speak. Come and speak to your pastors. Let us help you. When you turn from God's wisdom to what you think is right, just like Eve did in the garden, things don't get any better. They get worse. Just read what happens after Genesis 3. When you turn from God's wisdom, things go south. And so if you're thinking, what's so harmful about a little cultural thinking? Friends, when you reject the clear teaching of Scripture and let your culture set the agenda and course for your Christian life, when you embrace that which empties the cross of its saving and sanctifying power, it is only a matter of time before your heart begins to harden. And this is why we are called to the ministry of reminding one another of the gospel. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be, what? Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, these Corinthians had become tolerant of this man, and they were proud of their tolerance. We don't know who this was. Maybe he was a man of high social standing. Perhaps since these Corinthians were impressed by these things, they thought they would let it slide. And Paul rebukes them by saying, instead of being proud, you should be grief-stricken. You should be in mourning over the presence of such wickedness in your midst, and you should have acted according to the wisdom and the way of the cross. Look at the text. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul says this person who is living in unrepentant sin can no longer be a part of you. 
he should no longer be, be counted among your number. His identity cannot be joined with yours. Remove him from among you. Now here's what cultural thinking would say. Let's call it worldly humility. Worldly humility or cultural humility will say, who am I to judge? Why should I get involved in someone else's mess? Who am I to point a finger at someone else's sin? Paul says, that's not humility. That's arrogance. That's arrogance. If you call yourself a Christian, then you should be broken over something that required the crucifixion of your Savior. No, biblical humility grieves over sin. Biblical humility submits itself to the wisdom of God's Word and removes the unrepentant member from the community of the sanctified. Cultural humility cares for nothing and does nothing. It is nothing but arrogance disguised as humility. Biblical humility is willing to take up a cross and follow Christ, and that means at the very least obeying the commandments of Christ to discipline an unrepentant member of the church. You know, Paul is only saying what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 17. If, an if a believer claims, if someone claims to be a brother, says he's a Christian, but he refuses to acknowledge his sin after repeated admonishments, if the, the entire congregation is to be informed so that they can in turn try and persuade him of the truth. If he refuses to listen even to the church, says Jesus, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, as an unbeliever. When sin is left unaddressed, and when unrepentant sin is tolerated, the Holy Spirit says, that's a congregation that is arrogant. Their faith is resting in the wisdom of men and not in the power of God. Beloved, if you want to see sin's true colors, if you desire to see its wicked and vile nature, then look at it through the lens of the cross. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. The more you look at the cross, the more you will see your sin, and the more you see your sin and the glory of the Savior's sacrifice, the more you will grow in humility. The tolerance of unrepentant sin is pride, but there is power in the Spirit's Word that points us to the cross. And that brings us to the second thing that Paul teaches us, and that is the power of church discipline. Look at verse 3. For though absent in the body, meaning not physically present, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, here's the reason why this man should be removed. Paul says, because I have already said so. 
I have pronounced judgment. Paul states this with all the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ, as one who both trusts in the word of the cross and as one who walks in the way of the cross. His words are the very words of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead and applies all the saving benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection to the lives of believers. This is why you are to do it. But what does Paul mean when he says, even if I'm absent in the body, I am present and as if I am present, I have pronounced judgment, namely, you should remove him. You know, if someone invites you to their graduation ceremony and you say, oh, brother, I'm so sorry, I can't attend, but I will be with you in spirit. You ever heard that? It's a lame excuse. You know, what, what, what we mean by that is, I can't be there in person, but I'll be thinking of you. You know, my thoughts are with you. It's usually an expression to sort of express solidarity in purpose. I don't think Paul has this sort of psychological meaning here, because he sees his presence in the Spirit as being good enough to actually pronounce judgment. Look at the text, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as though present, I have pronounced judgment. Now, when Paul uses the phrase present in the spirit, he's referring to the spirit-inspired words of his letter. He knew that this letter would be read in the gathered assembly, and, as, and, and so as they were being read, his judgment would be pronounced. We know this is the case because of the next verse, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, that's when he's present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This is particularly important because we know that some leaders were arrogant in thinking that Paul would not come. But in Paul's mind, even though he did plan to come, his letters were as good as him being there for this purpose. And so here we see the excommunication, the, the separation from the fellowship of the saints being described. That's what we mean by excommunication. Ex out of communication, out of communion. You are out of communion with God because you're sinning, and you're out of communion with His people. So this is to be carried out when the church gathers together. When they come together, when the word, this letter, is read, and note the phrase, with the power of our Lord Jesus. His words carry with it the power of the Lord Jesus, meaning the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the power that Paul has been talking about, the power of the Spirit who applies all the sin-conquering and sanctifying benefits of Christ's work to our lives. And so, friends, this is why we do church discipline for unrepentant sin. And we do this in the gathered assembly when our members come together and we bring the book because we want to do this on His authority with His power with His presence. 
That's why it is stated in our church covenant that we will defend and maintain an evangelical ministry in this congregation by supporting and upholding the preaching of the Word of God, the practice of the gospel ordinances, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and the exercise of church discipline. You see, these members had been very unwise in their living because they had moved away from the word of the cross, and Paul comes to them through the words of this letter, and he once again imparts wisdom, wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And it is in returning to this word and carrying out church discipline will these Corinthians show themselves to be truly wise. And friends, this is what I mean when I say the power of church discipline. See, God acts in power through His Spirit, and He applies the redemptive work of Jesus to His people when they trust in the wisdom of His Word. The Father and the Son and the Spirit work together and only together for our growth in holiness. And this is why we must not separate Jesus' work on the cross from the power of the Spirit, from the will of the Father, and from the written Word. No, all of this holds together. And so this is what Paul wants them to do. They are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Even though the Corinthians have been given Paul's apostolic word, even though it is clear what needs to be done in Jesus' name, did you notice in the text It's not the elders of the church, but the entire congregation that is to carry out this act of church discipline. Removing offenders is a corporate responsibility. It is a congregational duty. So what does Paul mean when he says that the congregation ought to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Well, 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the god of this world. Therefore, to hand someone over to Satan is to remove someone from the fellowship of the saints, to remove them from the membership of a local church, and to release them to the world which lies under the sway and power of Satan. Handing this man to Satan is parallel to removing him from their midst in verse 2. You can see that in the text. This final act of church discipline or, or excommunication is not for all sin. No, it is only for unrepentant sin. If it was for all sin, all of us would have to be disciplined. This is for unrepentant sin. When a member refuses to listen to biblical counsel and does not repent of his sin and behaves like a natural person, the church can no longer in good conscience affirm that person's profession of faith as genuine. And so they remove him or her from their membership. It's the church's way of saying to the world, this person says that they are a Christian, but they're not living like one. True Christians repent of their sin and grow in holiness because they are trusting in the power of the cross. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Now, for what purpose do we hand this man to Satan? Well, the text says, for the destruction of the flesh. Now, in some cases, flesh could mean physical body, 
And so some have taken this to mean that such an act would invite God's judgment and the person could become sick or die. Now that is certainly possible. We see the Corinthians getting sick and some were dying because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We also know from Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira die. They're struck down by God for lying to the Holy Spirit. But those things did not come about because a congregation disciplined them. Plus, when you read verse 11 of chapter 5, Paul says, do not even eat with such a one. I don't think he was expecting this person to die. No, the flesh here means the sinful nature. This act of church discipline is done for the destruction of his sinful nature so that this person would come to his senses, that he would crucify his flesh, that he would repent. We know this is right because of the next half of the verse. Look at the text. Hand this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What's the goal? Look at verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the purpose of church discipline is not to punish, but to restore. It is redemptive. It is a solemn and painful command that the church carries out in humility because of a Christ-like love for the unrepentant sinner. Now, practically at Grace Church here, usually after months of pleading with an individual, we then tell it to the church at a members' meeting. This gives the opportunity for the congregation to then appeal to the sinning individual to repent, to lovingly reach out to the sinning brother or sister. And if he still doesn't repent, if he doesn't listen even to the church, then we remove him from our membership at the next meeting under the guidance of the pastors. This is not something that the pastors do unilaterally. This is the responsibility of the entire body. The person is removed by a vote. You know, this is done with much grief, with tears, with prayer, and fear and trembling. We are handing this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You know, the closest parallel to this phrase is found in 1 Timothy 1, 19 to 20. Paul says, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So the handing over is done with the intention that they would change, that they would learn. It is for the destruction of the sinful nature so that their spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I've met so many people who don't like church discipline, and the reasons they give me are always cultural. They are rooted in worldly wisdom. I know an evangelical Arabic-speaking pastor who once said to me, oh, we would never do that in our church because it would be so shameful to the individual. You know, we are an honor-shame culture. But friends, this is not just an Arab thing. If you go all around the globe and talk to unbelieving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and, and nation, someone or the other will have this objection. They will find the idea of church discipline 
completely repulsive. People will say, it won't work. Well, why do you do this? People will just leave the church. It's not loving. I always find that funny when people say it's not loving. Here's someone claiming to be more loving than Jesus. It's not enough for them that Jesus commands it. How can this shameful act of excluding someone bring about the saving of his spirit? Friends, I wonder what you think of this command, this word that commands this act. Do you find it foolish, scandalous, offensive, shameful? If you've been listening carefully, you know that this is exactly how God's wisdom works, doesn't it? Foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, in the flesh, died on the cross for the sins of His people, the unbelieving world thought it was foolish. How can an instrument of shame be a means of our salvation? Answer, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is why we sing in the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. When the unrepentant member is the subject of church discipline, if he's truly a believer just caught up in a season of rebellion, then this act will be the means to bring him to repentance and restoration. Friends, that is why to not discipline someone is the height of arrogance. And it's also unloving to the one who is caught up in sin. And it makes light of the power of Christ's sacrifice. But what if the member never repents? the member never repents, then the act of church discipline will make it plain to all that he was never really a Christian to begin with. You see, when a congregation obeys the word to discipline an erring member, this act of removal, like the cross of Christ, will reveal who is perishing and who is being saved. But friends, the obedience to the command to Discipline and unrepentant sinner is not merely for the sake of the sinner. No, it is also the means by which God purifies His church. And that brings us to our third point, the purity of the church. Look at verse 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Their arrogance was not good because not only had they become insensitive to sin, not only had they forgotten the power of God's Word, they had also forgotten their identity. They were called to be a holy people. They had forgotten that sin defiles a congregation. And to help them understand, Paul goes to the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, Paul uses this process of bread making 
to explain that when you put a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough, it will spread. And pretty soon that, that dough will rise. A little leaven, that's all you need, will leaven the whole lump. And in Paul's mind, the congregation at Corinth was like that lump. And ongoing, unrepentant sin was like that leaven that had the potential to spread among its members. To remove the unrepentant sinner was to remove leaven. Friends, this is what it meant to be God's people, even in the Old Testament. And so Paul reminds them that the foundations for dealing with sin like this, for dealing with sin in the congregation, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And he, and he teaches us about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is what both those feasts pointed forward to. It pointed forward to a new covenant community in Christ that celebrates, that delights in holy living. Now, you know the story of the Passover. In the book of Exodus, we are told of how God judged the people of Egypt by sending the angel of death to wipe out all the firstborn in the land. But He also told the people of Israel that they would be spared if they trusted and obeyed this word, that they were to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of their houses so that when the angel of death went through the land, he would see the blood of the lamb and he would pass over their houses. This was how God's wrath would be averted. This was the last plague that struck Egypt, and after this, God redeemed His people. He set them free, and He led them out of Egypt. This lamb came to be known as the Passover lamb, and this sacrifice marked the beginning of Israel's exodus the beginning of their new life as a people saved by the blood. But God also asked the people of Israel to keep another festival, the festival of unleavened bread. It was right after the Passover. And this was meant to teach the people of Israel that as a redeemed people, as a people whose freedom was bought for them, as a people who were given new lives, they were to leave their old lives behind leave everything that was associated with their old lives. Being saved by the blood of the Lamb meant that they were to be marked out as a pure people, a people set apart, consecrated to the Lord. And so they were told to remove leaven from their houses and to eat unleavened bread for seven days. They were to clear out, put away anything that belonged to their old way of life in Egypt, nothing from their old lives in Egypt was to contaminate their new liberated lives. That was the point. And Paul sees the church as the fulfillment of old covenant Israel. I mean, think about it. He's writing to Gentiles. Culture is not important. Biblical truth is important. Israel's history is our history. Abraham is our father. All that was given in the Old Testament, all of redemptive history leads to Christ. It was written for our instruction. The people of God under the Old Covenant was a type that pointed forward to the New Covenant community. And so Paul says this in verses 7 to 8, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Notice what he says. We are to cleanse out the old leaven. We must deal with sin. Unrepentant sin must be disciplined so that you may become a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, become like what you really are. Live like holy people and don't tolerate sin because you are holy. And here's why. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And just as God in His grace was willing to accept the substitute of a slaughtered lamb in order to spare His people from the coming wrath, so also He sent His sinless Son to become our substitute, to lay down His life as a propitiation for our sins. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve so that we could be clothed by His righteousness, by faith. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that if you recognize your arrogance towards God and humble yourself, if you believe His word that you are a sinner who deserves His judgment, if you turn away from your sins and put your trust in what Jesus accomplished on that cross, you will be saved by His resurrection power. He can forgive you. He can cleanse you. He can free you from your bondage to sins and He can fill you with the power to overcome them and overcome them daily. And He will give you a new community that will love you. Love you enough to care for the purity of your soul, for the purity of your life and walk with you. If you don't know Christ, turn to Him and you will have eternal life. In Jesus Christ, you will have a double cure. He can save you from wrath, and He can make you pure. Beloved, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in Him we have been given a new identity. So live in a way, says Paul, live in a way that is consistent with your new holy identity. What does this look like? Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, if anyone in Israel ate anything leavened during the festival of unleavened bread, they were to be cut off. They were to be removed from the covenant community. Under the old covenant, as a nation under God, sins were regarded as crimes. And many of those sins were punishable by death. Those sins were considered as a violation of God's covenant. The sinner was viewed as someone who did not understand the love of his Redeemer. If someone in Israel had committed a high-handed sin like the man in Corinth did, they would have been put to death. But something has changed, hasn't it? Paul is not calling for the death penalty. He's calling for church discipline. And that is because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, all of it. He has fulfilled all the feasts and the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Our identity is in Him. His death has inaugurated the new covenant whereby His people are not those who belong to a particular nation and are marked by circumcision. 
No, His people are people who are born again and filled with the Spirit. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that is why anyone who insists on continuing in their old sinful ways cannot be part of the new covenant church. Sin is leaven, and it spreads and contaminates the entire church. And so, beloved, we should take sin seriously. The congregation must discipline unrepentant sin. We must live out of our new identities. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus died to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's Titus 2.14. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, he says, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is what the Feast of Unleavened Bread pointed forward to, the new covenant community pursuing purity and disciplining unrepentant sin. If you're trusting in the gospel, then you and I are called to remember Christ's finished work and celebrate the cross and celebrate the resurrection by living holy lives. This is our corporate responsibility. Did you see that in the text? Let us Therefore, celebrate. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? Celebrate. Pursuing holiness is not like eating vegetables. You know what that's like. You don't really like it. But, oh, it's for our good. We have to eat it. Some of us think that pursuing holiness is like that. We have to tolerate it. Paul says, celebrate it. Celebrate it. How do we do this? As people with changed hearts, as people who delight in God's Word, how do we do this? There's two ways, and it's in the text. Number one, watch out for the leaven of malice and evil. Watch out for the leaven of malice and evil. This is where all sinful behavior begins in the heart. This term, malice and evil, is the opposite of sincerity and truth. You know, malice refers to our wicked thoughts and ill motives and evil desires. If you're only concerned with what society and culture and even what other church members will think of you, your focus will only be on your behavior, and you will behave in a way that conforms to the community like a good little Pharisee while sin will eat away at your soul. Now remember that Jesus came to save us from our sins. He died and rose again to give us new lives in the Spirit so that by trusting in His victory, we can kill our lustful thoughts. We can kill our evil desires. We can kill our ill motives. James tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings death. You have no one to blame except yourself. It starts in the heart. The leaven of sin 
begins in the heart, and it corrupts. It will corrupt you, and it will corrupt others. So let me ask you this. Do you have a friend in this congregation that you regularly discuss the struggles of your heart and your temptations? Do you exhort one another daily so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? You know, celebration involves enjoying God's Word and putting off sin, but it also involves putting on righteousness. Number two, celebrate the festival with sincerity and truth. Be candid and honest about your sin. 1 John 1, 8-9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are living a double life and you're hiding sin, repent of it. Bring it to light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, Paul says in Ephesians 5.11. Furthermore, when you are sinned against, obey what Christ tells us to do in Matthew 18. Go and tell your brother his fault, truthfully, lovingly, just between you and him alone. Beloved, have you considered how unloving it is to not tell your brother his sin. You're setting him up for a worse fate. Sin spreads and sin defiles. Don't be arrogant. Love him. Tell him his sin. Pray for repentance. When we discipline an unrepentant brother, You ought to remember how God's wisdom works. And so be zealous and eager to speak to the sinning brother or sister to turn them from their sinful ways. Husbands and wives, moms and dads. The celebration needs to begin at home. Would your children say that you delight in holiness because of the gospel? Church discipline matters because holiness matters. And holiness matters because love matters. And we can only know love and experience its sanctifying, cleansing power when we look to our Savior's cross. Let's be found in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often we pursue obedience to Your Word just to appear holy. Forgive us, O Lord. Produce in us a deep repentance that drives us back to the cross of our Savior, that drives us back to His power so that we can truly kill sin and pursue holy lives. May we pursue the obedience of faith so that your glory may be put on display 
through this weak congregation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.